This is Driven by Data, the podcast. Welcome to Driven by Data, the podcast, brought to you by Orbition Group and hosted by me, Kyle Winterbottom. Orbition Group is delighted to bring this podcast series, which boasts some of the most high-profile data, analytics, and AI thought leaders from across the globe. Each episode details the journey to the top of our industry's most respected leadership figures, while bringing unique insights drawn from first-hand experience on the industry's most trending topics, told in order to share knowledge, experiences, and ideas to inspire, innovate, and give back to the global data and analytics community. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. Welcome to Driven by Data, the podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Robert Pond, who is the senior counsel at Bristow's law firm. Um, Robert, absolutely delighted to kind of have you with us. Probably not our most um, atypical guest, um, but obviously uh, looking at your background, you do a whole host of other things and involved in a lot of other different bodies and associations, which um, quite keen to to kind of hear about. But uh, I guess before we kind of get into the meat of the topic, it'd be great if you could just give the listeners a kind of brief introduction into you and, and your background and I guess journey to date. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for having me on. Um, so I trained as a lawyer in my uncle's firm in Wolverhampton and then got my first job in a provincial law firm in Burton-on-Trent. I don't think it was the beer that drove me there, but (laughs) it was an attraction once I'd realised that we did a lot of work for the breweries in Burton. And um, I started doing commercial real estate or commercial property and company law and general commercial agreements. And then a few months into being there, my next door neighbor used to keep me awake at night with strange sounds coming through the apartment wall. And one morning I said to Malcolm, he was an 18 year old guy. I said, what do you do at three in the morning? And he said, come on in. Uh, There is a motherboard. I'm doing a variation on Space Invaders. And uh, we talked about arcade games because that was the industry he was working in was, you know, the good old fashioned fruit machines. But he needed a company setting up and I he was my first client. He then got a deal for Invaders Revenge, as it was called. And um, it was one of it was a really successful tabletop game that you could play in pubs back in the 80s, early 80s. And from him, uh, he introduced me to the guys called Domark that then became the guys that did Tomb Raider. And so I had a whole period during the 80s when I was really a computer games lawyer. So it was intellectual property technology. And then lo and behold, we had our first Data Protection Act in 1984. And I remember looking at that and thinking, well, My clients are already collecting loads of information about the parents that buy the children games and so on. And they're already thinking, what could we do with this data? It might be an interesting area to focus on, not realizing that, you know, two decades later, I would not be doing anything other than data protection. 
So in 1998, I did my first global data transfer agreement for electronic arts. And then I was in a US law firm and we had a lot of clients in um, the Midwest and a lot in life sciences. And so I ended up doing a lot of data transfer issues and patient data type issues for companies there. So it was happenstance that I got into data protection. Uh, my friend Malcolm, my next door neighbor, went on to make a lot of money and then became a serious investor in the games sector. We still keep in touch. Um, and yeah, that's sort of how it all started. Nice. So, um, as I said at the start, not our atypical guest, um, but, you know, to, to kind of surmise, it kind of seems, you know, interestingly enough, a lot of the people I speak to that end up in leadership positions within the world of data, whichever side of the coin they're on, they, they kind of normally do that by chance um, and come from another kind of area. Um, so there's nothing too too different in that respect. But I think, um, you know, obviously part of the Data IQ 100 this year as well, which, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not too sure, but I can't imagine that there's many other legal professionals in, in that list. Um, so, yeah, I guess, you know, one of the reasons we were kind of excited to have you on, Robert, was, you know, if I look at the the industry that, that we're in and, over the last 10 years and especially the last five years where there's been this huge kind of increase in businesses starting to go on that journey from a data and analytics standpoint, you know, and all the buzzwords that we hear now around, you know, data science and AI and machine learning. And there's always that, you know, focus has been in that camp and started to detract away from a lot of the more foundational aspects of, of data, you know, like the privacy and protection, like the governance and all that type of stuff. But I think we've seen recently, especially over the last six months, this, this resurgence, I guess, around, um, you know, data management practices and privacy topics and issues and all that type of stuff. And, and obviously the rise of data ethics. So starting point would be great just to kind of pick your brains on that and understand, you know, why do you think that is from, from your perspective? Yes. Yeah, so interestingly, um, when I sort of transitioned from just doing work for computer games companies to doing other technology work, um, one of the areas, again, I blundered into um, was um, public key infrastructure, digital signature technology back in the, again, the late 90s. And there weren't many lawyers looking at that type of technology and how it could be used to secure communications and so on. So, you know, I... Before I became a lawyer, I'd spent a number of years in the uh, Territorial Army as an officer, and my area was communications. So back in the 70s, you know, I'd been at Sandhurst learning about um, crypto and secure communications. And actually, that was a really interesting, again, happenstance that it meant I could talk to uh, technology vendors and information security specialists 
because I sort of basically understood, admittedly coming from a lawyer's perspective, the technical side they were talking about. And it was quite clear with some of the clients that I was doing work for back then, uh, like RSA Security was a big client. Um, and I had other clients like Trustis that did uh, digital signature technology. Um, the, there were some really fascinating uses of technology to secure information. But then it wasn't long before I was also doing work for credit reference agencies who were saying, look at how much we can provide in terms of the profile of individuals. Um, and that was, again, back in the late 90s, you know, fast forward 20 years. And the principles are exactly the same as they were then, which is technology enables you to do a huge amount with data some of which, of course, is personal data, but with data in general. The challenge is that if you're not transparent with individuals about why you're doing certain things with their data and what the, the, the value exchange is between the individual and the business, uh, you run the risk that individuals lose trust in you. And, you know, in the last year alone, with the ICO investigating credit reference agencies, with all of the issues around social media companies doing a lot of stuff with people's data, and then well-publicized data breaches where businesses effectively have lost control of personal data, the whole thing has been raised up to a level where the consumer now sort of understands how valuable, certainly understands their data has a value and sort of understands what businesses might be doing with it. And equally, businesses that have got themselves into difficulty suddenly realize that even where they are fined a sum of money, that doesn't come anywhere close to the damage to brand and reputation. And it's that which has driven a lot of businesses to say, we need to not only um, be transparent about what we do and embed privacy by design into what we build, but we really ought to now be embedding ethics by default into what we do. Mm. Yeah. So I guess... Effectively, there, what you're saying, the really interesting part there is you started to talk about the public's literacy of, you know, how their data is being used, right? And that's, that's, I kind of find that ironic because one of the things that I often find myself conversing around with a lot of data leaders is how, you know, their challenges internally is how the, you know, business execs are often not literate enough to data to be able to really drive business value. Um, so that's that, 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 that's a really kind of um, ironic concept there that the fact that, you know, the general population now understands that the, the value that their data has maybe um, to these businesses. I think that's... Uh, well, yeah, let me just sort of come back on that. Um, one of the, the sort of privacy conundrum, as I call it, is that the reality is you've got government 
who wants everything and you've got businesses that use everything and then you've got consumers who give away everything <laughs> and even though consumers are becoming more aware of the value of their personal information in reality businesses even where they are trying to do the right thing and say you know here's what we do with cookies here's how we process and share your data click here to accept um, everybody just clicks the whatever button they do because they want instant access instant gratification and so i think the previous information commissioner christopher graham once said that um you know, clicking I agree or I accept is one of the biggest lies because you've never read what it was you were agreeing to in the first place. And in many cases, even if you bothered to read it, you wouldn't be able to understand it because it's written by us lawyers who are trying to protect the business rather than inform the individual. But that is changing. And we are seeing more businesses going, do you know what, if we actually were transparent and were innovative in the way we get permission to do what we want to do, then we've got data that is actually valuable rather than being toxic. So I guess effectively what you're saying there is the, the, the literacy of the people has to a certain extent kind of increased. And because of that, companies now are probably a little more apprehensive around the consequences of, of kind of getting that whole privacy piece wrong um, but a lot of organizations still try to tie the consumer up in a lot of lingo so that you know it's kind of even if they did read it they probably wouldn't understand it too much but now we're kind of moving away from that somewhat to you know organizations trying to innovate by just being very open and honest about mm -hmm. how they're going to use your data which obviously that's that can only be a good thing, I presume. You know, I, I'm no lawyer, Robert, but uh, it, it sounds like a good thing. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, do you know? There's um, um, we lawyers tend to use still Latin language, etc. And um, um, I'm still amused. And I saw this the other day with a, a website for a local business um, down here where I am in Devon where they'd obviously had the website revamped, um, lots of pretty pictures and, and, you know, very slick. But unfortunately, their, um, their privacy notice was still in the web designer's Latin language. It said, you know, um, locur, ipsum, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And you think, well, I know lawyers write stuff in Latin, but you can't say that that is actually a plain language policy. What's worrying is, of course, the, the business hadn't even bothered looking at what it was saying. And we still see that. Um, uh, I was doing some work for a company that um, set up an online dating um, website. This was before we had apps. But they launched the online dating um, service. Then they asked me to give it, give it the once over to make sure it was all compliant. And I went in to see the compliance officer and he said, before you say anything, 
we've got a privacy policy. And I said, I know you've got a privacy policy. I've seen it on your website, but it isn't yours, is it? And he goes, what do you mean? It's not ours. And I said, well, let's just put it up on the screen and read it together. You're a dating agency and your website policy says, and reading it out, he said, we love your privacy so much that we will reveal your data to no one. <laughs> and you think not likely to find somebody as a date on a <laughs> and it, he said wow. yeah i think our marketing people may have cut and pasted it from somewhere else i'll have a word with them wow. you still see that <laughs> really? yeah that's interesting so the, the whole kind of consequence piece is something that i definitely want to delve into um, but i guess before we get to that point um i'd love to kind of hear your thoughts around you know the the kind of the key protection principles that businesses need to, to kind of get it right, you know, to avoid getting to that kind of consequence stage. Because I think, you know, from, from my opinion, where I kind of sit and I kind of span the whole end to end, everything from privacy all the way through to, you know, your artificial intelligence and everything in between. And I guess we're, we're kind of in that space now from an ethical standpoint where many businesses are almost trying to toe the line to get as much value from it but without overstepping that line but are very conscious of where that line is um but you know if you look around especially you know small to mid-sized organizations that maybe don't have the wealth of data that some major enterprises do they typically go you know when they start that journey it's a case of right what's going to get us value and they go straight to the data science and artificial intelligence and they don't often have those foundations in place um you know, data management, something that they probably don't focus on privacy and protection, maybe even less. So, I mean, even if you, you know, just look at the sheer number of people that they employ, right. You know, they might have a team of 15 analytics folk and maybe one, if you're lucky to, you know, kind of data management or privacy people in, in, in that business. So, um, but I do feel, as you said, we're starting to slowly catch on to the importance, but I guess, I just wanted to kind of understand how you go around, you know, identifying with the types of clients that you're working with, that what the key principles need to be, you know, in terms of what, what you should be considering if you're trying to put a, a privacy and protection kind of framework in place, if you want to call it that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and if you, you know, the the famous GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, we've got that now for over two, two and a half years. And it didn't actually add anything much to what we had before. So the principles are still the same, which is you need to have a, you know, fair and lawful way of processing people's data. Um, You have to have an approach whereby you don't use, collect data for one purpose and then use it for a completely different purpose unless you've already got that permission. And you can't keep data longer than is necessary. And what you have, you have to keep accurate and up to date. And then individuals obviously have their rights to know what you've got, to ask you to delete what you've got, etc. You've got to have adequate technical and organizational security in place. And then there's the separate issues about the uh, the, the restrictions on data transfers, and obviously that's going to be an issue for us with Brexit coming up. Um, you need to also be accountable for what you say you do. 
so that when I talked about transparency, you need to have plain language information for individuals that says, this is what we do with your personal data when you give it to us. And these are the different ways in which we may use the data. And here's with whom we might share the data. Uh, and here are your rights. And here's whom you can complain to if you're not happy. And that's really being transparent. And then having said what you're going to do, you have to do what you say. And that gets harder when you have a business where the data is being collected by different departments for different reasons, whether it's staff data, whether it's job applicants data, whether it's um, customer data, target data, data relating to complaints, etc. You've got all these different buckets. And um, you have to be accountable for the way in which you manage the data in those different buckets. And that's where you need to not just have a privacy notice on the website or on the app, but also you've got to have your other policies like, do we have a data retention policy to know how long do we keep this type of data compared with that type of data? When we've finished with the data, what's the mechanism we use to destroy it? Do we have a policy that helps us manage individuals' rights when they serve subject access requests and say, I want to know everything you've got about me within a month, otherwise I'm going to you know, take you to the cleaners as well as to the regulator. Um, you need to know what to do when you lose the data. You know, we are all going to have issues at one point or another what's the plan because it, it will go wrong and then you also need to remember that the more special category or sensitive the data the greater the ante is upped for how you manage it and what happens when you lose control of it and I'm not my experience is that a lot of the systems that we have used for like CRM systems marketing databases, etc., have never been designed to categorize the different class of data. And more importantly nowadays, the when you collected the data and what was the lawful ground you relied upon to collect it. Because the media keeps talking about, and loads of consultants were saying, oh, if you haven't got consent under GDPR, you can't do things with people's personal data. You won't be able to market to them if you don't have their consent. And then as we've unpacked the law, we've realized that's not true. You can, you can rely on legitimate interest if you've got a relationship with a customer and you want to do more direct marketing. It's not about consent. Um, in the current COVID-19, if you're taking temperatures at work or you're collecting data from customers visiting the, the premises or the pub or the gym, you know, on a temperature taking track and trace taking basis, you don't need consent. I mean, you may well ask for it, but you're doing it on the reason that this is for public interest. So we need to know that there are six different lawful, or as one of my clients calls it, awful grounds for <laughs> processing. And it would be lovely if your system told you 
that data that we collected from Jim, who is now complaining about it, we got with Jim's consent. But that information that we've got about Jim, we got from his social media account because he put it in the public domain. Um, and then when Jim exercises his rights and says, I want my data ported from your website or your database to a competitor's, you can go, well, not all of it, Jim, because the law says you only have to port the data that you collected either with consent or for contractual necessity, not where you got it under legitimate interest or public health or vital interest, et cetera. But my experience is we've never compartmentalized the data in that way. So to sum up where I think we haven't got it right is that we don't really know our data estate. We've got all this stuff, you know, these data lakes or these data reservoirs, but we don't actually know which tributary it came down to get in there. So we need to spend more time understanding the data estate or the, or the provenance of the data. Because if we think data is so valuable as an asset and we're uh, an up-and-coming marketing company, uh, data analytics company, and now we're looking to get our first round or second round of investment, the investors' lawyers are going to say, can you please tell us on what basis you collected all of this information that you say is worth $3 million? Because from what we can see, your privacy notice doesn't even make legal sense. Uh, you don't seem to have a policy around data retention. You don't have very transparent permission language. So we're not actually sure it's worth $3 million. You know, and I've used that argument, you know, for a client many years ago who was looking to buy a company from the liquidator that had gone under. And the liquidator was saying, look at all this customer data they've got on their affinity schemes and so on. You think about the companies going into administration right now. And, and I was looking at this and saying, you're telling me that this is all worth X, but you can't actually prove that your website policy ever gave you permission to do what you're doing. So we're not paying you X. We might pay you a bit of Z. Uh, you know, and so if you, that could be your biggest issue, that what you're sitting on may be vast, but it might be toxic. Yeah, it's so interesting because there's, there's certain points in there that kind of resonating with me immediately. You know, there's a big topic in the industry at the moment around trying to be able to view your single source of truth you know with all of the different as you mentioned there's so many different mediums and platforms and data lakes yeah. and you know a crm your payroll and finance your staff records all of that stuff um and most businesses they're, they're kind of on this journey to try and add value yet they, they can't see exactly what that data looks like and the flip side to what you just said there around you know potential consequence especially for a business if it's looking to sell um obviously there's a big part of that you know it, it costs to have data right so having a wealth of data that that might be great if you can use it and and it's and it's usable and all of the privacy and protection element is is correct but if it's not 
you know, it's a cost to have it. And then I'm sure there's a cost if you kind of get caught um, with your pants around your ankles, so to speak, for, for want of a better phrase. So I guess to, to yeah. jump into that then around the consequences, because you started to delve into that a little bit, you know, around what some of the consequences might be if, you know, s- some of the principles that you spoke about earlier aren't quite right. But I guess love to hear around you know some of the some of the horror stories i i guess um around the consequences of of what happens when it goes horribly wrong and what that actually means you know in a very high level business perspective yeah yeah absolutely so um if 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 you are responsible for managing that personal data it's not just it's not just managing it whilst it's in your system it's also managing it when it is hosted by third parties or where you are using a third party to do marketing for you or after sales care, call center work, et cetera. And more than ever now, we need to be looking at the contracts that we have with our external vendors to see if we have contractually tied them down to doing the right thing. And then internally, we also need to look at how we have ensured with the key stakeholders in the business that they are living up to the policies that we've laid down. And again, to do that, you need to be doing an assessment of who do we use? Who are the third parties that we're using? What does the contract look like? Um, Is it going to be impacted by Brexit? Is it impacted by this new guidance from Europe about data transfers internationally and hosting internationally? And then internally, um, particularly in the current working from home environment, do we actually have control of where this stuff is? Um, We might well have guys working for us in marketing, for example, and they're using their personal devices. Um, It's not part of the enterprise-wide network now. It's sitting somewhere else. Or they're at home and they're printing it off. Are they shredding it? Where is it? What's going to happen when we finish this COVID thing and we all go back to working in the office how do we get back onto the platform? All that stuff that's now gone in different directions. Um, if we don't know where the data is, as well as what the data is, how are we ever going to respond to an aggressive request from an individual who says, I want to know what you've got about me and where it is? Because there's going to be a load of head scratching at this point because you don't know. And You have to, in the business, assume, and I apologize for using some blunt language, but you have to assume that you're surrounded by idiots when you're in charge of compliance, because some of the stories I've got just would, you know, they make you you weep. So HR, in a client of mine, the HR team hired a new lady to work for them. Uh, Her job was to... Um, take the passport of the individual applying for the job and their qualification documents and their utility bill for proof of address and scan them into the system. 
she decided it was much easier to take the same amount of time to go to the car park and have a cigarette and then just take pictures of them on her personal device with a view to putting them back into the system later. Of course, weeks go by and everything is still on her device. And you ask yourself, how would the company respond to a subject access request from an applicant who's claiming that they were discriminated against? And I want to know what you've got about me when you don't know where it is. You don't know it's on this lady's device or she loses it. Now you've got a data breach. And, you know, that's an absolute common one that we come across. And then you use third parties to do certain things. So I had a US company that did fulfillment. And what they did for a well-known toy store was send birthday cards to the children whose parents had bought a gift, you know, this time last year. Um, Unfortunately, the database was not kept up to date. And so my client was sending birthday cards to dead children. They started to get complaints. And what did they do? They apologized um, to the parents for the failings of their client, who who was the controller, given that our client is the processor, which only exacerbated what happened next. And that damages the brand. And I remember when the client said to me, you know, what's the worst that's going to happen? I said, well, we better look at the contract that you've got with the toy store. And they said, well, we haven't got a contract. It was just um, just an exchange of emails. And I said, well, you're lucky because it's not your problem now, but it certainly is the toy store's problem. And where we're at now with the increased fines under the GDPR and so on is, you know, with what you've seen the UK commissioner doing with British Airways and Marriott's and now uh, Experian, uh, you know, looking into Experian's use of credit reference stuff. The worst case scenario is, is that you're challenged by provenance of the data and you can't answer that because you don't know where it came from and why you've got it or you lose the data and it's now gone. It's on the dark web and you have to notify the regulator. You've now put your head above the parapet, so to speak. And now the regulator's um, investigation team start asking all sorts of other questions where you don't necessarily have the right answer. Or it isn't you that lost the data, it's your cloud provider or it's the marketing agency you were using to do the the, compiling the marketing list do the marketing etc what's the contract have to say there so you've got contractual issues you've got the regulator investigating and then of course individuals can now sue you on a class action basis for compensation for nothing other than emotional distress so you, you can find now you're fighting on different fronts and this is actually diverting the business from making money. So it's not a happy place to be in. Mm, yeah. So easy to see why it's such a minefield. You know, we're not talking about only what data you have and how you've come to have that data. We're talking about where that data is, 
who's responsible for it, you know, with third parties and vendors and things like that. Um, so, yeah, I guess who typically is responsible for this in an organization, Robert? Is that the, the role of the, of the DPO or the equivalent, really? Yeah, yeah. So if you are an organization that is mandatorily required to have a data protection officer, so typically where you're doing large-scale processing of sensitive data, so you might be a you might be a clinical trial company, you might be a bank, you know, an insurer, or you're a local authority, um, or you're doing a lot of processing of criminal record information. You're going to have to have this data protection officer, and certainly the data protection officer is then the person responsible for managing it. But it, he he or she is not personally liable for that it is the management of the business that has the liability Um, if you happen to have a data protection manager or a records management specialist or a compliance officer or a legal counsel they have responsibility but not necessarily liability so it comes back to the board of directors um, and there's 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 recent examples where the ICO has gone after you know the main director of a company that is that is doing cold calling you know bre- breaching telephone preference rules etc which I, is not quite data protection but it's it's parallel to that um, and, you know, we've seen individuals being personally fined. And in the case of one case this month, or rather last month, November 2020, the director is struck off from being a director again. So there's a lot of personal liability here, as well as the corporate brand issue. Right. Well, so, yeah, I mean, obviously the, the consequences then, you know, the, the, there's multiple of them, it seems, you know, we're not just talking about getting a slap on the wrist and, and a fine. We're talking about also potentially being sued by individuals. We're talking about, you know, obviously what that does to the reputation of the brand, which, you know, I guess inhibits you from maybe making as, as much money as you could or would have done otherwise, not to mention the distraction of actually having to deal with this internally um, and not just from a corporate level, potential um, personal level, depending upon the situation as well. So there's a lot, lot riding on this. I mean, I know it's difficult to answer, I'm sure, this question, but uh, can you give the audience kind of a, a general feel for, you know, what type of sums are normally involved when it comes to a corporation being, you know, fined for, for kind of breaching on this type of thing? Yeah, so, so you know, the, the public domain information on the Marriott Hotel fine by the ICO and the British Airways one, you know, they were millions and millions and millions. And there's the, the, the right exists um, for the regulator to fine up to 2% of global annual turnover. Uh, for certain breaches of the law. So not appointing a data protection officer when you should have done, Uh, not having a good record of your processing activities, that sort of compartmentalization of the who, what, when, where, why, and how of what you do with the data, 
but it can be up to 4% of global annual turnover if you've not complied with data subjects' rights. Um, and that could be not only did you not collect the data lawfully, but you've now lost it. So it could be because of a breach. Or it could be that you're sharing the data with third parties without complying with the international data transfer rules. Um, you're not getting consent when consent is the mechanism you should have been using. So 4% for a big organization will undoubtedly be huge, but it might be crippling for a smaller organization. Mm. And, you know, um, most regulators would prefer to not be using the big stick all the time. But undoubtedly, in the UK, the regulator will pick her battles as to who she thinks she will go after. And it might occasionally be a small organisation that has just ignored the law at all levels. And it could be that the consequence is that the business goes into liquidation. It, it can't afford, it, it doesn't exist. And that the, the owner, the director, is then struck off from practising again. And that, you know, I know we're looking at this from a marketing, big data analytics type of business, but it could be the same for a, a firm of accountants, a firm of lawyers. It, 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 and it, it will not just be the fine, but it will be the reputational damage. And then if you have, and again, this is the situation with some of the big well-known fines recently not only have you got to pay the fine to the regulator but you will have the ambulance chasing law firms doing the no win no fee you know have you lost sleep worrying about where your data is because british airways lost it or marriott lost it no worries come to us no win no fee and it could be so the UK border force in one month sent a spreadsheet to a particular asylum seeker uh, with that asylum seeker's details, but the spreadsheet contained the um, details of every other asylum seeker that month. So you had the parents and the children's details on there, and the, the UK border force was made to compensate for the breach uh, between £2,000 and £5,000 per individual. So you imagine a massive breach. I think Yahoo had something that was like several billion people. Times that by a 1,000, that is bigger than the regulator's fine. So, you know, that's, that's one of the big risk areas. And all that people have to show is emotional distress. Mm. Yeah. Um, if you turn it round the other way, um, so not looking at the deeply depressing side, but um, I've got a US client who does um, uh, builds targeting lists, usual sort of activities, does um, call center work. Uh, they were told by two of their big tech clients at the start of the GDPR journey, if you have not got in place 
systems and processes that enable us as the controller to feel comfortable about using you, we will not use you. And the chief exec said, that's about 50% of our turnover for these two big tech guys. So we have to do it. And having gone through all of the time and effort to change the privacy language, to you know, change the terms of business, to do all of the policies, this, that, and the other, um, and given that this is a company that isn't even in the UK, but obviously targets business in Europe, um, the CEO one day said to me, do you realize that we've now got all the right things in place we should go out and market that we are compliant um, because it's an advantage we have over some of our competitors. So he then turned it around and said, you know, there's the return on investment of all of this that we've done is that people can trust us. And, you know, I think that that's a good example of why in terms of marketing companies, analytics companies, um, the more that you can show that, that you can trust us because we have these things in place, the more you're likely to, to keep business, if not get more business. Mm, yeah. I mean, you made a really good point earlier because I think, you know, a lot of the people in our industry, when they think about data and analytics, as I say, that their mind consciously wanders to, to the to the analytics spectrum, right, around how can we use this data to benefit and get value from our business and drive revenue and profit and so on and so forth. But the, the point that you're making is even that businesses that aren't necessarily doing that, there's still all these consequences if they don't have the data protection, right? Because it's every business has data just by fish, you know, just by trading, they've got multiple data sources that they need to, to kind of look at. So the, you know, it's not necessarily just the businesses that are kind of forward thinking and trying to innovate by using advanced analytics. It's, it's any business that has data full stop. Yeah. And, and I mean, I, I'm all for the technology producing added value uh, so long as, again, you know the provenance of what you've got in the first place and that you are able to do what you want to do. Uh, it, it's, it's interesting that um, with, with, for example, the, all of the public health data stuff that's been going on during the pandemic and with, in due course, the growth in smart roads, smart vehicles, smart cities, etc. cetera, uh, there will need to be a greater level of governance. And literally at the end of November, the European Commission announced that they are going to be having a new regulation on data governance uh, to set a standard for how public authorities share data for public good and how public authorities then also work with private entities for those same purposes. Uh, and a lot of the language in there was around ethics. So it wasn't around law, it was around ethics and governance. Um, I, I understand that the mayor's Mayor of London's office is looking at 
creating a data charter, again, for using ethically uh, publicly available data like where tourists go spending money or traveling on the tube uh, in order to predict better tourism um, settings or uh, to protect or to improve the network. Um, and again, you can see that this is already happening and it's a good thing that the, that the authorities are realizing we need to have a structure that makes this lawful. And if you start getting it coming down from the top, it will flow its way down to all of the businesses below. And so, yeah, I think over the next five years, we're going to see increasingly more focus on those words, governance and ethics and accountability and so on. Mm. Yeah, I mean, obviously, that that's only going to be a good thing, which and I guess we kind of started to creep into my last question, really, Robert, obviously the whole world, the, the, the word around ethics has become a massive part and data ethics in, in, in particular. Um, when, when these things go wrong in your, in your kind of experience, how much of it is due to ignorance versus, um, you know, people going out to, to try and do something that they shouldn't, if that makes sense. Um, and, and I guess, where does the, where does the ethical piece fit in, to, to that you know what what part does the, the ethical piece play so although we hear a lot about you know hackers phishing malware cyber criminals etc um, in many instances where we deal with something going wrong it's more often than not operator error right it's attaching the right document to the wrong email address and it's gone and you know it's the, the worst thing you can do is to try and recall um it's not like you know damaged goods on the shelf you can recall those before they've been purchased but once the data is out there it is out there and it's difficult to get it back um and often the operator error is it's not malicious it's just and probably we've all done it inadvertently you know including people in the cc box when they should have been in the bcc having autofill completing the email address and it's only after you've sent it you realize whoops it shouldn't have gone to you know that person it should have gone to that person or we leave something in the back of the taxi. Um, th there are loads and loads of instances where it is just a mistake. But unfortunately, it's an incident. And then you've got to go through the process of following your incident response policy. And a lot of what should happen is around having, having a process and then training staff. Uh, particularly training staff to understand how to do things correctly, but also to recognize when something comes in that isn't honest. So we need to also think about the, the phishing attempts, the unusual email, the this and that. And there are loads and loads of instances where that happens. And also, you know, if you, if you lose your laptop, um, don't be ashamed 
that you left it in the cab, be ashamed that you didn't ring up IT and immediately tell them so they could wipe it. There's an awful lot where we need to get the message across, not just to the workforce, but to the management. Because more often than not, it's, it's it's the chief exec who's just been given a new iPad for Christmas and is merrily taking stuff that should be on the corporate device and, and using it on the personal device. And then it's, it's still a breach when he's, he's lost it. Um, also, the doing things with the personal data outside of the, the procedure or the practice or the policy, again, is making people realize there is a consequence to what you're doing. And just because the technology enables you to do it, doesn't mean that it's right to do so. So when we talk about ethics, there's the there's the, the ethics at the corporate level. What is our business's standard or standards? And then what are yours, each one of you that works for us, personal standards? And, and that does, you know, does also sort of indicate it's very easy, you know, at the off, if we ever had an office party again, at the office party to do the selfie and stick it up on Instagram. Everybody's got the party hats on, et cetera. But in the, in the background is the whiteboard with the, somebody's master plan on it. We've all been there and done it. Um, so it, it's, you know, having an ethical approach that should actually be something that goes right to the heart of the business. That makes sense. And I guess from a, as you talked about there, a lot of the, the breaches come from human error, just mistakes, you know, nothing malicious. Um, yeah. On a bigger picture corporate scale, when we're talking about, I don't know, you might be a retail company, you might be a bank. Obviously, they're looking at the data they've got and looking at right, how can we use this data to, to kind of market to those customers better to, to increase our sales or whatever the case may be. In that instance and, and, and in that example, Again, is that more of a of an ignorance? Like they're just, you know, as far as ethics goes, is it a case of, well, we've got this and I can use it and therefore I will? Um, and is it just that they're not knowledgeable enough in that area? Or, or do you think in most cases where those bigger corporate things blow up, it's a case of they kind of know what they're doing, but they're towing the line to see what they can get away with and they've kind of stepped the mark and been caught? It's a bit of both in that uh, the the more regulated the business, you talked about banks, you know, um, they got at least more than one, two regulators they have to report to. The more regulated the business, the more likely it is that it has the framework in place, the infrastructure in place to ensure that what it does is on the right side of the line. Um, businesses that are less regulated may be inclined to go as close to the line as possible Hmm. uh, because data is valuable. And, you know, that's a constant, that's a constant question that I get is, you know, how far can we push this? And, you know, I don't always want to be the jaundiced lawyer that says, no, you can't. Mm -hmm. And so there are many occasions where you're saying, 
well, you can, but. And then the but bit is often around the, what's your risk appetite? Are you going to get away with it? Um, how would you look the regulator in the face if you got caught out? Um, and that's where, again, companies that invest in this um, try to have as many of the right building blocks in place so that when it goes wrong, because it probably will, they will be seen to have been moving in the, you know, doing the right thing. Yes, Mr. Regulator, this shouldn't have happened, but it did. Uh, but we had all the right things in place. We just unfortunately had somebody that didn't follow the policy. You know, we had a member of staff who made an error or was malicious because you know that happens as well. Um, and then you still have their companies that just ignore the law. Um, it, it, it won't happen to us. You know, we're only a small business, um, and if we don't do it this way, we won't make any money, and nobody will, you know, we, no, the regulator won't come after us. And then, of course, the regulator might well say, yeah, we are coming after you. Mm. And, and um, the majority of, of the, you know, most of my clients are trying to do the right thing. Uh, they have challenges because... Often the law is not as kind as they want it to be or as lenient as they want it to be. And when you start looking at the ad tech sector, real-time bidding, the whole use of cookies and so on, nobody knows the exact answer. But pretty much everybody knows what is not right. And, and so it's, you know, then the business has to say, we not only have to be legally correct, but there'll be occasions where ethically, even though we could do it, should we do it? Mm, yeah. And that was going to be my, my kind of final point there, really, because I imagine that instance must happen over and over again in business, right? You know, they, they may be able to do something which doesn't necessarily cross the line from a legal standpoint, but ethically, if this was to get out, goes back to what you were saying earlier around how would that be seen and would they be able to look the regulator in the face and say, yeah. well, we, we did it because we could, and but we know we shouldn't because obviously there's a whole host of repercussions as far as the brand goes, right? And are people then for not going to trust them and so on and so forth. So, um, Robert, absolutely fascinating conversation because I think for That's me, right. um, you know, so different to the type of conversation I'm, I'm, I'm normally having. And I think it's a, a huge talking point and um, great to have someone with your experience from a legal background that's been able to give us some insight into, you know, the ways that organizations should be tackling this and what the consequences are and things to think about. So thank you very much for coming on. Um, final thing, if there's anyone out there that feels like they may need, you know, additional advice or support on some of this stuff, uh, are you open for people to kind of reach out to you? And if so, what's what's the best way oh yeah De delighted for people to um, contact me um, you can find me on LinkedIn um, or you can you can send me an email to Robert Bond or robert.bond at bristows.com find me on the Bristows website yeah okay happy to help perfect Robert thank you very much as I said it's been an absolute pleasure and um, we'll speak to you soon Thank you. Thank Thanks, you. Carl. Speak soon. Bye-bye.
That's it for this episode of Driven by Data, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back next week speaking with another thought leader from the world of data and analytics. Until then, please follow Orbition Group on social media if you've not already done so, where you'll be able to subscribe and therefore be made aware of the podcasts as they arrive. And please share, like, and leave reviews so that more people from our industry get to hear and benefit from these two. If you've got any questions or you want to suggest ideas for topics or potential guests, then please feel free to reach out to me. Thanks for listening and I'll be back next week.